Good morning, Connect Church. Um, welcome to, to this morning's service. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Alistair Philander. Um, we're from Bergfleet and we, not we, but I work for a large retailer, predominantly playing in the risk and compliance space. I'm married to Haley. Um, Haley runs, with her partner, runs a non-profit organization called ICU, and they predominantly um, do work with young girls in the Cape Flats between the ages of grade 10 and 12. We have a daughter, Gabriella, or as many of you, some of you would know, Gabby. Um, she's a second year OT student at Stellenbosch. Um, and our son, his name is Aaron, and he's in the trick at Weinberg. I think the question that we probably, or we've been talking about very recently, um, is very relevant in the context of what we've been seeing happening in America. Um, particularly in relation to race. Um, the George Floyd, um, in, yeah, the George Floyd murder, let's call it what it is, um, has really been a focus around the world, not only in America. And I don't know if, if many of us might have seen it, but as much as we might think that the George Floyd murder was about racism in America, um, it has really gone across the globe. Um, and we've even seen it in our own city, in many of our privileged schools in the um, Western Cape, or in Cape Town in particular. We've seen quite a number of cryouts from our youth talking about racism and effectively the oppression that some of them are feeling. Um, and, you know, the question is 25 years after apartheid has been abolished, well, actually, it's more than that. Um, while we're still having those conversations. So I think those conversations are hard conversations that need to be have, needs to be had. Um, and it's, I'm sure, forced or caused a number of us to consider it and look at it and question ourselves about it um, more, well, not more so, but it's forced us as a family, myself particularly, um, to, to ask those questions. It's burdened me more than ever in the last two weeks, not because I feel that um, I'm still a victim, but when we hear what the youth are saying, we should be burdened to be able to respond to that. Um, and as we've put it in a number of the conversations that we've been having, is if someone can't speak up for themselves, it is the responsibility of, of ourselves um, to speak on their behalf. I say, let's speak. Let's be the voice of the voiceless and the downtrodden. Um, and, and that is a bit about what I think we're going to be talking about, or what I'm going to be talking into this morning. Um, it's not Howard's sermon that I'm going to be giving. Howard will still be preaching. But um, I am going to be talking into a number of those um, issues. I think the question that I've been asked many times is, does racism still exist in our country 25 years after apartheid? Um, and, and the response is, Yes, we might not see it, but it's definitely, definitely happened. So we might have seen the ab abolishment of laws. Um, we might now all be able to live in the same neighborhoods. We might be able to be going to the same churches and schools. But I think we're still living a fairly segregated lifestyle. Um, and, and the question is, what, what might that mean? You know, when we go back to the George Floyd uh, murder, we, we see police brutality probably in its most brutal form. 
we might not be seeing that here, but we're definitely seeing marginalized groups saying that they are feeling oppressed, that they are feeling marginalized. Um, and the question is, how do we stop that? I, I do believe it's a very complex um, conversation, but I don't believe it's something that we must be walking away from because it is uncomfortable. And, and very much so, it, it is an uncomfortable topic. Um, but I don't believe we need to be walking away from it and ignoring it. The challenge is that with us not dealing with it, we, we rob ourselves of the blessing of, of integration. Um, and I think that when we are able to integrate and we are able to talk to each other very authentically, um, we, we are able to understand each other, we are able to empathize with each other. Um, and in that empathy, we are able to walk alongside each other and, and help each other through that pain. Um, it is through lack of empathy that we see many of us would have been on, um, or not would have, we are on these um, WhatsApp neighborhood, neighborhood WhatsApp groups. And, and often we will see um, posts on those neighborhood WhatsApp groups like um, a CM in, in, the, in the area be aware or a BM um, at the corner of X and X um, and X and Y Street. Um, be aware. What does that mean? So when we say that we, or when we ask ourselves the question, does racism still exist? I think that in itself is probably a, a manifestation that, that yes it does, that we are still responding and, and reacting to people. Um, and and I, I'm very aware that I'm generalizing here, but we are still reacting um, and we are responding from a racist um, perspective. Um, and, and when I say a racist perspective, I'm, I'm more referring to how the narrative that we speak about, um, what, what does it mean? When we post those things on these WhatsApp groups, we are just perpetuating a, a narrative that says every person of color um, might be up to no good. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a bit later. Um, it is also because of this lack of integration that some people are still responding, um, you know, to, to affirmative actions appointment, uh, or affirmative action appointments as exactly that. When a person of color is, is appointed, why do we need to assume that that appointment was made on affirmative action before we even um, consider that it is actually based on that person's merit? Um, and it's in those small things that I think we, we see racism still existing in, in our society and in, in our communities. Through these conversations, I think there's been many times when I particularly, and I'm sure many people have asked ourselves, so how do we end this racism? Um, and, you know, as I've said before, I've been asking myself that question and I've been asking a number of other people the question and not necessarily people of color. I'm saying across, across racial groups. The reality is that the topic or, yeah, let's call it the topic. The topic is a complex one. There is no easy answer to it. I do however believe that as individuals, we should not be waiting for government to change it. We should not be waiting for institution, institutions to change that. It is our responsible, responsibility as individuals, and in particular Christian individuals, 
to, to change this narrative. I think a lot of times that the narrative is really informed by, or not, sorry, the conversations are really informed by the narratives that exist, particularly in our minds. Um, and it's not necessarily coming from a position of, of racism. I think it's really just about us being very comfortable in the spaces that we operate. Um, and when those spaces are not diverse, um, I think what happens is that the narrative that you share um, or the narrative that you have is informed by opinions that are very similar to yours or mine, for, for that matter. Um, so we, we, we typically, as human beings, surround ourselves with people that are, are just like us. Um, but what that robs us of is the ability of understanding um, what other people are going through. And until we make a deliberate decision to spend time in contexts or environments that are very different to the comfortable environments that we would typically spend, um, we, we, we don't get to understand um, what others are going, going through. We don't get to consider our positions or our opinions based on a different perspective. And, and when we are able to, or not when we are able, but when we make that decision to, to be very deliberate about diversifying our, our groups or our, our context, um, it just gives us the opportunity to spend time and consider a perspective that is very different to ours. Um, that being said, I think it, it is very important to consider that I'm by no means saying find a white friend or find a black friend or find a Chinese friend so that we can have these conversations. I think a bit later in one of the questions that I'm going to, to respond to, it's, it's really about forming authentic relationships okay, that allows you to have those conversations not forming relationships to have those conversations. It, it, it's a byproduct of an authentic relationship. Um, and, and when we are able to converse and dialogue on that level, it just gives us the opportunity to be more empathetic um, and, and understand a very different perspective. The question that, that probably a lot of us ask ourselves is, it's a lot easier for me to to operate the way I'm operating or to live life the way I'm operating. But if what you say is true that we need to, to try a bit harder, what is it that we can do as Christians? Um, even Not even as Christians, just as individuals. Um, and to an extent, I'm thinking that it's a lot easier than we would want to imagine it is. Um, there's a lot of very complex interventions or, or um, things that we might think we need to do. But an easy start is really just looking around, you know, looking around at your social circle and very easily, or for a number of us, we're going to find that our social circles look very similar or the people in our social circles look very similar to us. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. The only problem with that is, like I've said previously, that those 
people that are sitting in our social circles that look like us probably have the very same perspective that we have. And that perspective is influenced by history, it's influenced by um, our culture, um, and as a result of that, I'm going to call it closed circle, we, we are robbed, as I said before, of that opportunity to understand a very different um, perspective and, and context that others might live in. Um, so once you've looked at your social circle and you've understood or you've accepted that your social circle is not as diverse as, as what it could be, I think the next probably um, for a lot of us, um, our responses are, are going to be, yeah, but my social circles are diverse. And, and that in itself is great, but I, I think there's a further challenge to that. Um, because we, I, I speak for myself and I don't necessarily speak for anyone else, but I know that I am in diverse circles. But how often, or not how often, how authentic are those relationships um, is, is the next question that we need to ask ourselves. Because a lot of times we sit in those, those um, social gatherings um, and we say that we, we have friends that are diverse. But because those relationships are not authentic, we don't get to, to have these real conversations. Um, and I think it's important for us to have those conversations. I'm by no means saying that we need to form these friendships to have the conversations. I'm saying when we do have these conversations, or when we do have these relationships, the byproduct of those relationships are authentic conversations. Um, and through those authentic conversations, um, we are then able to understand a very different perspective to the perspectives that we have. I think the second point or the second um, opportunity we have, but, but it's almost a challenge to us, is to be, when we're having these real conversations, understand that we all have very, very different contexts. And because of those very different contexts, we hear and see, thing, see things through the lens that, have been, that has been created um, over years. What am I saying? I said very often I find myself in conversations with people and I start telling them my story. Um, and before I can finish my story, my audience is already forming a response to that conversation that I'm trying to have with them about my experience. And I often find that those responses are coming from a point of defense, trying to defend my, my position. I think it's important for us to recognize when people are telling their stories, they are actually telling a story about themselves. They are not telling us, they are not saying anything about you. So if I bring this back to the, the racial context, when I'm telling my story as a person of color, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm telling you my story. I am not saying that my, ex my experience makes you racist. Um, and, and it's important to keep that in mind because when we are able to listen to each other and hear exactly that, my story, we are able to respond with empathy. Um, and in a number of, of these situations, whether it's racism, whether it's sexism, whether it's any ism that we, we can talk about, 
people, when they don't feel heard, they respond in, in a way that's not necessarily, not necessarily right. So um, my challenge to us all is when we are listening, listen to what is being said, not listen to form a response, um, which in most instances that response then um, manifests in a defense. Um, so yeah, I think those, those are two simple things that, that we can do. It's not necessarily going to change the world, but it's going to change a small context or an environment of maybe two, three, four, five people um, that, that socializes together, um, where we're going to find that the conversations, because they are much deeper, um, allow us to understand um, and empathize with, with each other. I think in this space, we've been very blessed um, as a family to be having those conversations. We've been surrounded with friends that are, exact, that are willing to do exactly this. They, they listen, and we listen too, because everybody um, has a different perspective. But they listen, and through that listening and through the sharing, we found that our relationships have become a lot, more, um, a lot richer. It has given us all a very different perspective, and through this different pers perspectives, our narratives have changed. Um, I think we, the other outcome from these conversations is that we actually ended up respecting each other for our differences. Okay? We don't try and change them to become like us, and they don't try and change us to become like them. We accept each other for who we are with our differences, and we are able to love each other through that. Um, and, and that has been really rewarding for us. Um, and I think if we as a community can just take those two simple um, examples or opportunities of being deliberate about diversifying your social circle, um, we, we will find that the dialogue changes, we will find that our narratives change, um, and we'll find that we are able to respond to each other with a lot more empathy um, and yeah, through that empathy, um, the, uh, we've seen it and I'm hoping that, that many others would see it, um, that, that we just find that we are able to, to live and, and experience each other with, with a lot more love and care. And, and that's really my, what I'm wanting to talk to us about. Um, I think, um, it's a great opportunity. Um, for us to talk about these things, particularly in the church, because I think the church should be leading um, in, in this space. Um, and I'm hoping that we're all going to be able to be deliberate about this and have a lot more conversations about it. Um, maybe not as formal, um, but, you know, in, in, in our homes, in our, in our social circles, when we are out for dinner with mates, um, it, it's really just going to, to allow us to to, be, to live in harmony, um, not suggesting that we're not, but there are communities that are struggling with it. Um, le, le, let, us, let us lead. So on that note, I'm, I'm going to say thanks for giving me the opportunity and for spending the time with me this morning. Um, and I really hope that you enjoy the rest of the service. Thank you. Hello. I hope you found what Alistair had to share insightful and helpful. I certainly did, and I'm grateful to Alistair for sharing in the way that he did. Today's sermon is entitled Overcoming Racial Prejudice 
through personal action. And it is based on John's Gospel, chapter 4. When all is said and done, overcoming racism and its poisonous fruit is not something that any government can legislate or achieve. Reconciliation is a matter of the heart, and it's something for which each of us, whatever our background, needs to take personal responsibility to do. I'm very glad I have this opportunity today to talk on this important subject as recent events have reminded us. So let's dive right into John chapter 4. Verse 3, verses 1 to 3 provides the context. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. The significance of this verse is that it shows us where Jesus is geographically and where he wants to go next. It's easy to miss the significance of, of verse 4, but it's a very important verse and the key verse for my sermon today. John 4 verse 4 says this, Now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. It doesn't say that he went through Samaria. It says he had to go through Samaria. And this has great significance, which I'll get to in just a moment. But before we go any further, I, I want to describe the social political reality of first century Israel. And there are at least three cultural ethnic groups that we need to be familiar with. Of course, there were more, but for our story today, these are the ones that we need to be cognizant of. There were the Romans, the Jews, and the Samaritans. And our story is set in 30 AD in Israel. And let's look at each of these three ethnic groups and try to understand some of the dynamics at play between them. Let's begin with the Jews. After all, they were in Israel first. King David was king of Israel in, a, in around about 1000 BC. So more than 1000 years before the events we're reading about today, the Jews were living in Jerusalem. Yes, there was a brief period where for 70 years they were exiled in Babylon. But towards the, the end of the 5th century, many had returned. Let's think about the Samaritans. Who are they and where do they come from? Well, when the Israelites entered into the promised land brought in by Joshua, you will know that the different tribes settled in, in different areas. And roughly speaking, 10 tribes were in the northern part of Israel and two tribes were in the southern part of Israel. And as time went by, the term Israel came to speak about the 10 tribes in the north and the term Judah came to refer to the southern tribes. After the death of King Solomon, 
the, the kingdom of Israel split from being a united monarchy to a divided monarchy under two different kings, King Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And the southern tribes, Judah, had as their capital Jerusalem, and the ten northern tribes, Israel, had as their capital Samaria. And to cut a long story short, and it is a long story, it involved many prophets, God appealed to the tribes of the north to to, to live justly, to live fairly, but they would not. And so in 722 BC, God caused the Assyrians to conquer Israel. And the ten tribes that lived up north became scattered. And actually they lost their identity and they became assimilated into the surrounding nations. They married the Canaanites and all the different ites living in that part of the world and the ten northern tribes were really lost forever. They lost their identity and they committed the cardinal sin of, of assimilating into the surrounding nations. And that's where the Samaritans come from, because some people did trickle back and continue to live in Samaria. And uh, you can imagine how the Jews down south viewed their their compatriots up north. They regarded them as sellouts. They'd regarded them as, as people who'd been judged by God, who'd now lost their identity, who'd, who'd intermarried and whose culture had been diminished and, and lost. And so there was no love lost between the Jews down south and the Samaritans now up north around the city of Samaria. The Jews in the south regarded them as being apostates. And so we need to take note that, that the tensions between the Samaritans and the Jews date back to really this, this event, the fall of Samaria in 722. And as we can see that, as we can see, racial prejudice has been around for a long, long time. Ironically, many of the Jews and the Samaritans would have been distant relatives. Just as an aside, you can, you can recall when Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan. At the end of the parable, he asks the Jews sitting around and he says, Now who in the story is, is the one that did the right thing? Who in the story is the good guy? And, and they can't even bring themselves to say the Samaritan. They simply say, well, the one who showed mercy. They can't bring themselves to, to say the name. That's how deep their prejudice was. And there's a third player involved here, and that is, of course, the Romans. The Romans arrived in Jerusalem in 63 BC under General Pompey. First they besieged the city of Jerusalem, later on they conquered it and simply seized power by force and took over. This was colonialism. They, they'd colonized practically the known world. 
And they, they allowed the Jews a measure of self-determination and autonomy. But that is why when the Jews want to give Jesus the death penalty, they are not empowered to do that. They have to appeal to the Romans. And it is Pontius Pilate that uh, sends Jesus, sentences Jesus to death. So this is the socio-political environment that Jesus finds himself in. The Romans ruling over everyone, the Jews having a small measure of self-rule, and then up south around Samaria are the Samaritans. And no doubt the Romans look down on the Jews, and the Jews look down on the Romans, and everybody looked down on the Samaritans. As you know, racial identities and, and people's ethnic backgrounds are, are not always a, a clear-cut matter. Uh, race is indeed a social construct. And, and so you have someone like the Apostle Paul, who is thoroughly Jewish, yet he is a Roman citizen, and yet he's living and working among the Greeks and the Gentiles. So we can see how, how complicated some of these racial dynamics were uh, in the first century and affecting the first century church. So that's the, the socioeconomic, socio-political situation that Jesus finds himself in. But back to verse 4. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. This is where the Samaritans lived. Now, most Jewish people, when they needed to go from Jerusalem down south to Galilee up north, they would bypass the city of Samaria. They didn't want the displeasure of, of bumping into any Samaritans. So they would actually take an, an indirect route and go on the eastern side of the River Jordan and head up that way to the, to the Lake Galilee. But we read here, it says, now he had to go through Samaria. This is not something that just happened. This was a choice that Jesus made. Jesus went through Samaria. He went to Samaria because he had to. And he didn't have to because that was the only way there. He had to because God wanted him to go that way. He was compelled by the Spirit to go through Samaria. And why is this important? Well, in intercultural relationships, we talk about the value of proximity, the importance of placing yourself where you can learn about other people and other cultures where we can begin to see life through the eyes of other people. And the theme of today's sermon is overcoming racial prejudice through personal action. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus would have been immersed in Jewish culture. He too would have grown up seeing the world as his fellow Jews did. But here Jesus makes the decision to go through Samaria. There was a divine conviction that he needed to do that. And it did involve moving out of his comfort zone 
And he's about to see and meet and experience firsthand life as the Samaritans were living it. I also want to comment that this is a very small decision that Jesus made to go straight instead of to go around. And I believe this is how we overcome racism and prejudice. One small action at a time. Maybe it's the way you greet somebody you pass in the street, a stranger. Do you, do you give them a warm smile? Do you, do you greet them? It's these little things that can make such a difference. Of course, we need to do big things too. But here, this is a little decision that Jesus makes that we're going to see has huge positive ramifications. We need to ask ourselves the question, as I live my life, what are some little things that I can do differently that, that will contribute towards increased racial harmony and understanding? Another thing I notice here is that Jesus consciously chooses not to think of the Samaritans like everybody else did. There was a narrative in his culture as to who the Samaritans were and what they were like. There was a fixed way of viewing all Samaritans, a stereotypical view of how Samaritans acted and behaved. But here we see Jesus stepping out of that narrative. His approach is different. He doesn't just go along with what everybody in his group was thinking and saying. We have to decide that we're, we're going to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. We're not going to, to think what our group typically thinks. As Christians, we have to become counter-cultural. We have to be motivated by a different set of values. God's values, kingdom values, not selfish values. I often quote what Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 14, when he says, When you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbors. If they do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying don't be governed by self-interest. Don't don't just do what everybody else does, sticking to your own kith and kin. Rather be different, reach out, be different. Now he had to go through Samaria. Jesus was open to what God wanted him to do that day. Verse 5, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? 
I'm not sure we can really appreciate the radical nature of what's going on here. Here is Jesus in a strange land, alone, talking to a woman he's never met, who is also alone. And on top of that, he's, he's asking her for a drink. In verse 8, we read that his disciples had gone off to town to buy food. The woman is herself aware of the, the strange nature of this interaction. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then the gospel writer John puts in parentheses, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. I like the way the woman engages with Jesus. She pushes back a little. She comments on how unusual his request is. She's saying, what are you doing? Don't you know you're a Jew? I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? She's viewing life through a racial lens. It's not a case of, well, here's a person who's thirsty who's asking for a drink. No, the way she sees things, it's, it's with her narrative in mind. She sees, this is a Jew, I am a Samaritan. He is a man, I am a woman. This cannot be. But that's not how Jesus sees things. He doesn't say, hey, Samaritan woman, I am a Jew, I am a man, please give me a drink. His request is, may I have a drink? Perhaps Jesus doesn't even get his drink because he goes on. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In Greek, the phrase living water means flowing water. Fresh water. Verse 11, Sir, the woman says, said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks? My sense is that verse 12 is actually a little sarcastic. She's saying, are you greater than our father Abraham? I really don't think so. Jesus goes on. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus has switched to now speaking metaphorically. He's now talking about the gospel, but she doesn't understand that yet. There's a misunderstanding between Jesus and the woman. And it reminds me how quick we can be to misunderstand one another when we speak to people from different cultures. This happens very easily when people from different cultures and with different narratives interact with each other. One thing is said and intended, but something else may be heard and understood. 
We all speak and, and understand what we're hearing through the interpretive framework of all of our life experience. Jesus is sharing the gospel with her, but she thinks he's found another spring of water, a hidden spring closer to where she lives. And, and that's why she's interested. Truth be told, Jesus is using rather cryptic language. The woman says, sir, give me this water so that I, I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to drink water. Oh, wow, where is that spring that you found? Please show it to me so that I won't have to walk this far. I'm not sure why Jesus says what he says next. I can only assume it's because he's being prompted by the Spirit. But he says this, verse 16, Go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Well, that must have hit home hard. You've had five husbands and you're now living with man number six. If you were a good Jew, you might think to yourself, well, that's exactly the kind of behavior you would expect from a Samaritan. It fits the narrative. Terrible sinners with little understanding of God's will. Her reply is, sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Now she quickly changes the subject and tries to sound spiritual. Verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. It's a strange question to ask. And I sincerely doubt it was a question uppermost in her mind as she walked to the well that day. She's just trying to appear spiritual. And so she raises the only theological issue she can think of. And do you notice how it is human nature for us to often focus on the things that divide us? That's what she does here. She could have said, wow, isn't this great? A Jew and a Samaritan sharing a drink. She could have said, well, it really saddens me that your nation and my nation don't get on, even though back in the day we were one people. She could have said, wow, remember Jacob, this was the well that our forefather dug and where he met with God. She could have said all of those things. But she chooses to focus on something that divides them. And that's the thing that she brings up. That's the thing that she invests her energy and, and, and her time with Jesus into. On a small point of disagreement. Verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. 
And I think this can also happen in our relationships with each other as we do life together. We can be very quick to, to bring up those minor points of disagreement and to invest energy and time into focusing on our differences instead of focusing on what we all share together, our dreams, our aspirations, our desires, which, which are identical. Yes, there is a time and a place to, to talk about any and everything. But it's so much better to invest time into finding common ground with people as opposed to the things we might disagree on. And then from verse 21 onwards, Jesus answers her. And then in verse 25, Jesus says something absolutely astounding. The woman, sorry, the woman says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Now she's focusing on something that they both have in common. A dream that they both share of the future messianic kingdom. It's also interesting to me that even as a Samaritan, she is waiting for the Messiah to come. Even though her theology is deficient, the Samaritans only held to the first five books of the Old Testament. Even though she's living in sin, she's still awaiting the Messiah. What was this hope of the Messianic kingdom? Well, it was built on the idea that we're never going to solve our problems this, this side of heaven. And that the only way things are going to ever come right is through the intervention of God, through the rule of the Messiah in, in this world. And that was the hope and the vision of the coming Messianic kingdom. And both the Jews and the Samaritans shared that hope. And that's the hope the woman's talking about here. Because people can't fix society. We can't rule the world justly and fairly. It's never been done. It takes an intervention of God, a heart change, a work of the Spirit in people's lives to bring about true reconciliation. Look at what's going on in the United States 50 years after the civil rights movement. Look at what's going on in South Africa 26 years after the end of apartheid. Perhaps we're, we're a more polarized society today than we were at the start of the new South Africa, the democratic dispensation. But reconciliation, bringing people together, bringing nations together, is something that the church has been called to do. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 16, he says, From now on, we, Christian people, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, from a worldly perspective. Because if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. This is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ 
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Christians have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Our task in this world is to reconcile people to God and to reconcile people to one another. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Jesus says, it it is the peacemakers who are the, the sons of God. Back to verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. What happens next is truly remarkable. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Let's just let this sink in a little bit. Here's Jesus for the first time ever stating that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. Peter, the leader of the 12 disciples, would only reach that conclusion through divine revelation months down the line. But here's Jesus telling the Samaritan woman that he is the Messiah that she's been longing for. It was also a woman, Mary, who was the first to witness the resurrection of Jesus. But perhaps it was easier for Jesus to share his true identity here in Samaria, where the ramifications for acknowledging that he was the Messiah would not have been so swift and far-reaching. Now the disciples get back from their shopping trip. Verse 27, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Why are you talking with her? This is also interesting. The disciples are surprised to find him talking to the Samaritan woman. Perhaps they're operating in the the typical Jewish narrative of the day. They would have been even more surprised had they known what Jesus had just said to the woman. But I want to focus on the disciples' reaction. Verse 27. No one asked, why are you talking with her? Though what Jesus is doing is questionable in their minds, out of respect for Jesus, they choose to say nothing. And I think there's a lesson here for us too. Sometimes we can be very quick to give our opinion, to say what other people should and shouldn't be doing. But no one asked, what do you want? Why are you talking It's good to give people the benefit of the doubt, to not jump to conclusions and to, to assumptions about what people are doing and thinking and feeling. As we have more conversations among ourselves as people from different backgrounds, This is a a pitfall. It's so easy to fall into. One person says something and we we judge them for, for it without fully understanding why they've said it and what they've really intended. 
It's so important as we have these conversations around race and culture. We heard from Alistair's testimony earlier, it's so easy for people to make assumptions about other people. When on the WhatsApp group, there's reference to the CM or the BM walking along the street. There, there are assumptions that get made about what's going on there. And most of the time, these assumptions are wrong. They are unfounded. Twitter could also learn this lesson about people's motives. No one asks Jesus, what do you want? Why are you talking with her? It is amazing the effect that Jesus has on this woman. She leaves her jar of water, runs back to the town and says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? This is a powerful reminder here that God loves all races and all people. Even the Samaritans. It is to the Samaritans that his Messiahship is announced. Isn't that amazing? Just like the birth of Jesus is announced to the shepherds who were the lowest social class of the day. God delights to turn things around, uh, to make the first last and the last first. This, this outcome, this revival that takes place here in Samaria, this reminds us that even though God has judged these people and that they've forsaken him, God still loves them and his desire is to bring them back into the fold. God intended for the Jews to be a light to the world, but they preferred to keep the blessing and the light to themselves. They didn't take seriously their mandate to take the knowledge of God to the ends of the earth. Jesus had to go through Samaria in part because God wanted the Samaritans to know him and to follow Jesus. And that's the outcome, verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. We know from the book of Acts how later on there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Samaria. Perhaps it all began with Jesus making the small decision to do something different, to, to break from his narrative, to, to be countercultural, and, and instead of going around Samaria, to go through Samaria. Such a small decision, but one with a huge outcome. Friends, what can we each do differently each day that will build racial harmony and that will contribute towards the elimination of prejudice and racism in our society? What are these little things that you and I can do each and every day for the rest of our lives to be ministers of reconciliation? Maybe it's sending somebody a voice message 
asking a person who looks different to you to, to, to meet up for a chat. Maybe it's to get involved in a project that's going to bring you proximity to a new place that you're unfamiliar with. But what are those little choices that we can make that are going to undo racism and prejudice in our society? Because it starts with us, friends. For Jesus, it meant not sticking to the script of how he should behave. It meant living in, a light, in the light of a new narrative that in Christ there is neither slave nor free, Greek nor Jew, male nor female. In Christ we are one, we are, we are equal. How can we live in a, this new kingdom that God is establishing in our hearts and in our society? Also, Jesus didn't see the world through a racial lens. When he met the Samaritan woman, she was simply a person who needed God in her life. He saw a woman while she saw a Jew and a man. How do we fix the problems in our society today? The racial polarization, the mistrust, the miscommunication. We overcome racial prejudice through the way we choose to live our lives. The small decisions we make along the way. We defeat racism and prejudice through personal action. Here in John 4 and verse 4, it meant for Jesus that he had to go through Samaria. Would you take a moment right now to think what it might mean for you? Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, that we are one in Christ. Help us, Lord, to... To love one another, for in this way we demonstrate that we are your children. Lord, rid our hearts of all prejudice. And we pray for the love of God to be poured into our hearts for one another. And we pray that at this church, we would be known as a church that practices the ministry of reconciliation. Lord, help us to, to live in the, the narrative of the kingdom of God, to reject those ways of thinking that our group may have imposed upon us. Help us, Lord, to think your thoughts and help us to follow the promptings of your spirit. We pray that you would strengthen our fellowship and that you would deepen our relationships in this church, one with another. We ask it in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.